Hey everybody, thank you for joining me for the first ever Climb Forward podcast, and today I interview Jason Wood. Jason is a former Army officer who served three tours in Iraq. Having endured the loss of several soldiers, Jason found struggle in the transition back to civilian life. Afflicted with post-traumatic stress disorder, alcoholism, thoughts of suicide, and an overall loss of purpose, it cost him almost everything. That is, until he found the obstacle course race, or OCR, which as he put it, saved his life. You've probably heard of some of these. Muddy Buddy, Rugged Maniac, Spartan Race, Tough Mudder, Warrior Dash, Terrain Racing, Battle Frog, Bone Frog, Go Ruck, the list goes on and on, and that's just in the United States. But Jason isn't any ordinary OCR enthusiast. He wants to take it to the next level. Continually seeking to challenge himself, he wants to do the world's highest OCR, taking place over a 12-day period at none other than Mount Kilimanjaro. A Guinness World Record-breaking race consisting of 10 obstacles spread over 100 meters located in the crater between the clouds at the summit of the mountain. A natural-born leader both on and off the battlefield, a father, and a warrior. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Jason Wood to the podcast. An estimated 22 veterans a day commit suicide. It's a tragic loss, it's a life not fully lived, and a story untold. Climb Forward takes it upon ourselves to have a positive impact on the lives of these veterans by enabling them to heal in the great outdoors, helping them to find the courage to fight, the courage to persevere, and to face a new life of new challenges. They're not alone. Life is a mountain, and the journey is a climb. And what do you climb for? Yeah, I never know. Like Skype's kind of like, I don't know. Skype's always been iffy with like a lot of things I've done. Sure. Zoom Zoom seems to be what everybody's going to. Dude, Zoom's where it's at. Yeah. yeah. I've been yeah. a lot the last couple of weeks with the uh, Corona getting going on. So Yeah, exactly. Even yeah. my daughter, she had a she had a Zoom get together with her, with her kindergarten class. Oh, really? Yeah, so <laughs> I was like I put her on and I was like, "Man, this is just like one of my work meetings. It's a bunch of five 5-year-olds <laughs> trying to figure stuff out." Oh, man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, dude, thank you for taking the time to be on this thing. Um no, no structure, anything like that. Like, I really just want to hear, you know, your story and, and kind of what got you to this point. So, yeah. uh, real quick, I'll, I'll start with the, uh, the GoFundMe statement that you wrote. And, uh, that's what really inspired me. Um, so you said, I've re- I've recently committed to attempting the world's highest obstacle course race <clears throat> touted as the adventure of a lifetime. The world's highest OCR aims to break a Guinness world record in 2020 for the world's highest obstacle course. This adventure takes place over the span of 12 days, slated for September 12th to the 23rd, 2020, at none other than Mount Kilimanjaro. Athletes will compete as a team in this quest that features the 19,344 feet climb before tackling 10 obstacles spread over 100 meters in the crater in the clouds at Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm looking to use this world record attempt to also raise awareness and funds for the nonprofit Climb Forward an organization that seeks to combat the ever-rising veteran suicide rate by enabling the healing of physical and emotional wounds through adventure in the great outdoors. Since 2011, when I got out of the Army, I've not gone a calendar year without a former soldier, battle buddy, friend committing suicide. I've lost more to suicide than in combat. Hell, three years ago, I was there myself. Depression, PTSD, and alcoholism led me to the lowest point of my life. Suicide crossed my mind. It wasn't until I found obstacle course racing and adventure sports that my life finally turned around. Obstacle course racing saved me. 
and now I hope to use this OCR world record attempt to save others. That said, 80% of the proceeds raised will go directly to Climb Forward to support them assisting veterans suffering from depression, anxiety, physical disabilities, PTSD, and other wounds that people may never even hear about. And the other 20% will be directly used to fund my trip to Mount Kilimanjaro and in helping me get to the top of the mountain and through the world's highest obstacle course race. Dude, I think it's amazing that you're willing to even give that much to climb for. And I'm not going to talk you down from that number. <laughs> That's just a huge amount. But like, you know, the most important part about what you're doing is, is really how inspiring it is. Yeah. Dude, every single thing you mentioned, the PTSD, the depression, the alcoholism, or the substance use, um, I've been there in every single regard. I, you know, I don't want to talk too much about myself, but a lot of that I saw myself in, um, like yeah. the suicide ideation, the getting to those deep, dark points in life, which is just like, I don't really see a way out of this thing. Um, yeah. what, what is it about? So you left the army in, in 2011. So how long yeah. were you for? Uh, I was in for seven years total. Um, yeah, I, I got, I got my commission right after college. Well, the day I graduated college in 2004, I got my commission. Uh, so in May of 04, I got graduated college, got my commission and in October, November timeframe of 2004, I was already in Iraq for the first time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So right into it. Yeah. I jumped right into it right after my officer basic course, uh, kind of, you know, spent the five or six months, whatever, however long officer basic course was. Um, and then literally went, you know, right to my first unit from graduation from officer basic course and then right overseas and did, you know, did 0405 for a year. Uh, up in northern Iraq, Mosul area, came back for eight months, went back over again for another year. This time uh, we were based out of Kuwait, but we did the convoy escorts. So we escorted the supply convoys kind of wherever they needed to go in the country. And then uh, and then came back for a year and then got company command during that year. We came back and then I deployed again a year later as a company commander in the Baghdad area. Um, went to Taji and well, Taji and Baghdad area for another year. Came back from that, uh, spent a little bit of time, changed command, and then became an aide to a two-star for about 18, 20 months, I believe it was, something, something like that. And, and, then, um, and then about that time, I decided it was probably time to, to get out because I think you know, they were actually talking to me about what next duty assignment was going to be and talking about Afghanistan and things like that. So I was like, oh, I, I got to take a knee, guys. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, plus probably going for that next rank. And I mean, I don't know how it is. I didn't realize you were an officer. I didn't know. Yeah. That. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I was, I got all the way to captain and like, it, it got to that point where, like you said, it was, it was, uh, you know, getting the creeping up to becoming major wood. And, uh, it was <laughs> one of those things where it was like, you know, am I going to stick around or am I not? And, uh, the original plan even was, you know, I, I was an ROTC, uh, commission. So the original plan back then was even, you know, do my time, uh, get out and, you know, have gotten my bachelor's degree. And then, you know, and then the lure of having company command, which is one of those coveted jobs in the army, uh, being able to take troops and, you know, not only command troops, but then take them overseas and deploy them and, and lead them in combat is, is, you know, I think one of the, um, I, you know, it's, it, it was a, it was definitely something that I wanted to do. And so I stuck around for another three years and then, you know, that's when I decided. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What, what made you want to go the officer route? Um, well, actually, at the time, it was, uh, let's see, I was in high school, probably a junior, senior year. Um, I was starting to have the conversations about how we're going to fund school. Um, you know, I was born, my parents were 
what, 17 and 19 when they had me. Um, and so my mom, you know, my mom had to drop out of high school. My dad, you know, grad dropped out of college his freshman year and started working two jobs. And my mom was working jobs and everything else. And so they never really saved for college. So it was one of those things where it's, if you're going to go to college, you got to find your own way. And so, um, uh, football was uh, my thing. And in, in, in high school, I, I was able to secure some football scholarship money, but it wasn't enough to pay the whole thing. And my guidance counselor came to me and said, Hey, we got this thing called the ROTC scholarship. <laughs> and this was before 2001. This was, you know, I graduated in 2000. So at the time it was like, Hey, four years of just, you know, nothing really. And, and, yeah. and then you get to be on your way. <laughs> it certainly won't go back-to-back -back Iraq deployments and change the trajectory of your life forever. No, no, not at all. They didn't uh, mention so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so, uh, so got my, you know, I decided to go for the ROTC route and got a four-year scholarship out of it. And, you know, fortunately for me, um, you know, I didn't have to pay a dime for my bachelor's degree. And I also, because of the post-9-11 GI Bill, didn't have to pay a dime for my master's degree. So nice. the military's done some great things for me. I mean, it, it was uh, looking back, I wouldn't change a thing, um, but but definitely it had, like you said, it changed the trajectory of my life and it changed the way I kind of approached things in my life um, after I got out. So are you an only child? Or do you have brothers and sisters? No, I got brothers and sisters. So I got a younger sister. Uh, she's the youngest. Uh, she's, what, five years younger than me, something like that. I'm a horrible brother. I, I don't have their ages down <laughs> at all. Uh, and then my brother's, a my brother's the middle child. He's a couple years younger than me, and he's actually uh, – uh, inside, well, he's actually the de the co-defensive coordinator at the University of Richmond here in Virginia now oh, wow. uh, for their football team. So, so, um, so yeah. So I, I'm I'm the oldest of three. Gotcha. Um, wow. So older brother, and then you're like leading the charge for the family, pretty much. Like you got to set the example. Yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting because I mean, most of my family didn't go to college. In fact, I think okay. I was the first one that really went to kind of a, a four-year university um, and and and. You know, played foot, played, played intercollegiate sports and, and, and those kind of things. So it was a new experience for all of us. And I think it, it helped uh, help my parents definitely as a guinea pig as, yeah. as, as child two and child three came along. Yep, so, yep. Uh, so, yeah, definitely uh, there was definitely some learning um, uh, that, that my parents had to go through. Uh, again, being young parents and then, and then having me as the oldest son probably wasn't the best, uh, probably, probably wasn't the <laughs> ideal situation. I, uh, I I was a good kid for the most part, but I, I got into my share of trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I wasn't the oldest. Uh, there was only two of us. So, you know, I got to do a bunch of stupid shit. And my sister set the example. She's a doctor. You know, I was like, I don't know, like chief fellow of a residency or fellowship and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, wow. Trying not to get in trouble and trying to make it through college, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The black sheep of the family by far. Um, were there any other military members in your family? Like, what, what it was, was it just the prospect of? Um, I think, well, my, my family, I come up from a very patriotic family. I, you know, my, uh, grandfather did serve in the Virginia uh, army national guard. Um, he, he, he grew up in the post-depression era. So, um, there was that. And then my, uh, grandmother's brother. So my great uncle, um, he actually served in the army air corps and then, you know, served in the air force once it made the transition, but he was in world war II and, uh, he unfortunately passed just only a few years ago. And I mean, we were going through his house and finding all kinds of stuff and hearing all kinds of stories about him that he never told anybody in the family. And, and you know, we, we had to find that out, you know, later on after, after he passed, but, yeah. but it, we did have military presence in my family, but kind of, uh, it had, it had been some generations before, uh, before I kind of decided to make that leap. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about tell me about your times in Iraq, man. Like that's <clears throat> reading through your kind of your GoFundMe mission statement. Like I had to pause a few times because when it comes to you know all the issues we started off with, you know, with buddies committing suicide, people dying overseas. And then it really just encapsulates a lot of what Climb Four is about. It's like taking a taking a breather, taking a knee. Like you're done with service. Like what's your new purpose in life, kind of deal. Um, yeah. But a lot of what that carries with it is some of the baggage of what we've gone through. So yeah. if you want, and it's to whatever degree you're comfortable with, it, man. You don't have to lay it all out, or if you want to lay it all out, whatever you want yeah. to do. But what was some of that like? Yeah, I mean, I. I the best way I can describe some of like my my the the my tours was. Literally the first, I think it was like literally the first day I flew into Iraq, uh, that first deployment. You know, I'm a, what, 22-year-old, brand new butter bar lieutenant. Yeah. Uh, and we're flying from, um, I think it was Balad at the time, um, into up into Mosul, which at the time, and Diamond, Camp Diamondback, um, so which a lot of people knew at the time in 2004 was kind of the tip of the triangle of death up in the northern right. region. And so uh, literally as we're, we're flying around in this army Sherpa aircraft, which for those that don't know, is pretty much a prop plane that can't fly above a certain altitude. So we're flying low coming into the airfield there at Diamondback. And next thing you know, like we, you know, we're getting kind of shot at flying in. Um, and, and then we land and then about an hour later, you know, we, we, uh, we ended up getting mortared. And so within the first, you know, hour of me being on the site that, you know, being there in, in, in Mosul and in Diamondback, where I'm going to be stationed for a while, um, you know, we had those two, we had kind of had those two incidences, the, the wake up, you're here. Um, and then, uh, and then late, and then, yeah, exactly. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Iraq. Welcome to Iraq. Uh, yeah. In Balad, we had a few mortar, you know, the, 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 the mortar issues, but, uh, but I mean, at Balad, it was such a big base that you really didn't really didn't affect you that much but diamondback was so small we were there with the 25th infantry division at the time and so it it, it was you know you're ducking for cover at that point because you can kind of hear the rounds coming overhead um and then later on i think it was christmas eve right around christmas eve time frame uh was kind of one of the first big issues that really kind of shook me to my core my family really and everybody that you know loved me and supported me was uh that was uh, the day that a suicide bomber walked into the merez dining facility and blew himself up. And, uh, it was at that point, the deadliest day for, I think it was Americans and American troops in Iraq. Um, and so, you know, I, we were working the diamondback airfield there. And so we were having to watch as, you know, bodies were getting loaded up on aircraft and trying to, trying to be airlifted out. Um, and meanwhile, while they're trying to do all that and get the logistics of getting bodies over from rest to diamondbacks airfield and get the, get, get everybody out of there. Uh, we started getting mortared then. And it, it was a, it was, it was a heavily, you know, it was a heavily planned attack and, and, and it was just one of those things where going to comms blackout for the, you know, 72 hours or so that, that it took for everybody's families to get informed. Right. My, my mom and dad didn't hear from me, obviously. And so they're freaking out. Um, cause you know, this is kind of month two or three of me being, you know, overseas and, uh, and so it kind of shook all of us. And so that was kind of the, the, that, that, how that first deployment really went. And then the second deployment, what I think was the scariest for all of my family. And that was the one where we were escorting convoys all over Iraq. And, you know, we came into, uh, you know, close, close, uh, you know, close, 
uh, close combat with, uh, with a, lot of, a lot of small arms fire, and, uh, and, and then I got hit with an IED at one point. Unfortunately, it didn't do anything. I mean, it's a shrapnel kind of, kind of thing, but, but, but that whole experience kind of was like, wow, this is, you know, this is more than real at this point. Uh, you know, I just had an IED blow up, you know, 40 yards in front of me and shrapnel's brushing across my truck. And I, you know, I just remember sitting there for, you know, the next 30 minutes or so with uh, my gunner and my driver and the gun truck and just complete silence and, and kind of just, you know, the realization of that incident. And then, um, you know, we'd go to a, well, you know, a base in Iraq, we get mortared there and everything else. And, right. and then, and then, so, you know, that, that, that deployment specifically, I think had the most effect on not only myself, but everybody kind of that I served with and that in, in my company. And so I think it was that deployment where, you saw a lot of the issues of, of suicide that, you know, once we got out and drug use and alcoholism and everything else that you saw, um, that I started to experience. And, um, and then company command was kind of that final tour was, was really at that point, I wasn't on the roads. I wasn't, you know, actually out there anymore. I was kind of just, you know, pushing paper to, to say the least. Uh, but, yeah. but, but, uh, but, you know, I got a chance to see, from that viewpoint, really the effects that it was having on my soldiers and, and just how, you know, from that 50,000 foot level, how, how damaging it could be from that mental aspect. Um, and, 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 you know, how they were resorting to, you know, drugs and alcohol and everything else to try to ease that, that pain. And then once I got out in 2011, and that's kind of what I make the statement in, in, in my, in the, um, the GoFundMe, is that I literally have not gone a whole calendar year without a soldier committing suicide. And so it's a former soldier committing suicide. And so it's one of those things where literally every, every year you're almost expecting it. And then, I mean, one year we had twin brothers take their lives uh, a week apart. Uh, They were both served in the company with, with, you know, with me and great soldiers, you know, the model of physical fitness, the the model soldier and, one twin brother took his life and then the next twin, the other twin brother took his life almost a week later. And, and so just seeing, you know, how, how damaging of an effect that had on his family, his mother, you know, losing two sons and, you know, basically two week time period is you know, so just yeah. emotionally draining. And I mean, it just to live through that, I, I would only want to imagine. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it, it, those, ex- those experiences during deployment, I think, um, we're mentally and physically draining and, and it took a lot out of people. And then when you get back and you kind of reintegrate into life, uh, back home, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you feel like you're kind of closed off from the rest of the world. And, and you, you, there's not a lot of, uh, really, there's not a lot of support out there. There's not a lot of people that understand what you've been through. And so if you're not around folks like me and you and others that have been to combat or been deployed and, and experienced those kind of things, um, and you go back to your hometown in, you know, Oklahoma or, or Iowa or Virginia or wherever you're at, and, sure. and you're surrounded by a community that has no idea of where, you know, where you're coming from. It's, it's lonely. And it's, it's, you know, you, 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 you kind of feel like we are right now quarantined off from the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's kind of, it's so funny you mentioned that because, you know, you, I hear people that are talking about how stressful it is with this coronavirus deal and, they just, you know, they can go out to the grocery store, but you can't really interact with anybody. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that sort of situation is, you know, it's due its own respect in terms of like how annoying it is. 
But, you know, you compare that or not even compare it, but then you put that in context with, you know, what it's like to go through what you went through and to come back. And it's like you're surrounded by people. You know, you come back, you can interact with any number of people, but it's like people just don't kind of get it. Right. It's it's a different lifestyle over there. It's different priorities over there. And you come back and people are complaining about standing in line at Starbucks. Right. They got my order wrong. Well, who gives a shit? Like there's no S vest about to walk into the Starbucks. Like who cares? Right. It's, yeah. it's kind of frustrating sometimes. Yeah. Something else that, that and there's a you, you went over quite a bit. And thank you for opening up about that is you mentioned as an officer, you have this like bird's eye view of things. And that's yeah. a unique experience. Um, any sort of leadership, especially in the upper echelons, uh, you have like a different view on things than people that I'm just a sled dog. dude, just an enlisted. I just I just much, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, the higher up you get, the more you have perspective and have to hear the reports and report to about yeah. all every individual thing that goes on. So you knew about all of it. You know, yeah. I would hear stories about and then we'd go to Memorial and it's like, OK, like this is kind of what's going down. Maybe I didn't even know the guy, even though they were seal. It's like, you know, maybe we all knew each other, um, yeah. but it was super, super close. You had intimate contact with these dudes like you. You knew their families like you were. Ne- you, you you gave briefs to them, debriefs, and yeah. You know, how did you know some of these guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew all of them, uh, you know, very well. I, like like you said, yeah. it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, you 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 you're you're dealing with family readiness groups, so you know their wives, you know their kids. You're you're you have company picnics and mm-hmm. and and you try to do the things outside of just you know, regular PT formation and, 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 and the regular day-to-day type stuff to kind of like make that, um, you know, make it a family atmosphere for everyone, make everyone comfortable. Cause I mean, my big thing is you're going to get to, you're going to go to war with people. You want to know who they are and you want to know who's on your right and your left. And, and I, I think, um, the company that I specifically commanded and served with for the most, for, for, for the most of my, uh, my tours were, you know, we were very close and we're still, a lot of us are still close to this day. You know, there's still a, a Facebook group, a messaging group between everybody that was in that unit, uh, going forward. So, I mean, and, and they're all there for each other and, and they all have each other's backs and, and, you know, it's just, as you go through and, and you'll, you'll lose one, you feel like you're truly losing a brother or a sister, uh, in those situations because, um, you, you know them that well, and you have those really distinct memories of who they were as a person and what they enjoy doing in their off time and, and things like that. You didn't know them just as, you know, the gunner or the, the passenger, you know, or the, you know, of the truck. It was, it was so-and-so, and this is what they enjoyed, and this is what they meant to the unit, and this is what they brought to us and those kind of things. And I think that's the piece that, that hurts the most is, is really, um, you know, knowing them as people more so than just knowing them as a number or, you know, a position or a, a rank. Right. Yeah. People, you know, we talk about the, uh, the daily suicide rate somewhere between 20 and 22, according to the current, you know, VHA report, uh, yeah. so say it's, that's, you know, a, a vast underestimation. I think it's much higher than that. <laughs> it's easy to look at just numbers that are reported and be like, well, that kind of sucks, you know, but when somebody, you know, yeah. Like, you've been close to somebody you've interacted with oh man it's a whole different ball game altogether yeah um, it sounded like from your story like there's just a lot of loss um and you know the toll that that takes you mentioned i mean the depression other people uh 
the suicides from after, especially after the second deployment, you know, how did you deal with that to begin with? Um, yeah, I think, uh, for me, it really, I think everything kind of hit me hard when, when I was going through my own kind of reintegration into, into the civilian world. I think it was just, um, I was very fortunate to find a job that, that supported the military as a contractor. And so it, I was still around, um, fortunately. Right. And so there were still people that spoke the language. I was still in a company that had veterans in it. Um, some of them I kind of served with. And so there were some shared experiences there. So my transition was definitely a little bit easier than a lot of people's. Uh, but as time went along, I really noticed where I really noticed it was just uh, my relationships with others, um, you know, specifically, um, you know, uh, intimate relationships with, 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 you know, people and, and then even friendships, it, you know, if, if somebody hadn't served and I was friends with them, it was kind of hard to have that connection. Yeah. And then, um, and then, you know, I just really struggled with kind of the day to day. Like I could go to work and be around people and do my job on a regular basis and be, you know, great at it. It was, it was when I came home and was kind of left alone on the couch, you know, sitting there in my own thoughts. That's when things got kind of like crazy for me. And so uh, that's when I kind of turned to, to alcohol as kind of the way to, to, to self-medicate in a lot of ways and, and, and get, get to sleep. And so, um, and then that eventually would affect my relationships and uh, going forward is, you know, just, I couldn't, I wasn't great at communicating. I wasn't great at, at being there for people. Uh, you know, I was kind of, kind of a very like, why are you crying? Suck it up kind of, kind of mentality. And, uh, and, and, in relationships, you can't be that way. You got to be able to talk through it and you got to be able to communicate and you got to be, you know, empathetic to other people's feelings and, and, and everything else. And I wasn't that at all. And, and it got to a point where, um, there was a separation between me and the mother of, of my daughter. And, and when that separation kind of happened, that really just, that was the moment where I really considered taking my life. Cause it was, it was one of those instances where what's, what's, I, I'm so fucked up. Like, what's wrong with me? And like, why can't I get this right? And um, and and I really considered it. And then, fortunately, like that next morning, I remember going to my mom's house, my mom and dad's house, and I was just like, I was just emotionally a wreck. And and my mom talked me through it, and we scheduled an appointment with a with a counselor, and we went to the V. I went to the VA, and was at least able to start having the dialogue and start talking through um, kind of my thought process and what was I thinking and why was I thinking it and, and those kind of things. And I think finding that help and that outlet at least eased the pain and started to like, you know, be a, be an outlet for me, but there was still something that was truly missing. And, and so I think, as I mentioned, obstacle course racing, finding Spartan race probably was the, the best thing for me and saved my life is, is kind of where I'm at or, you know, kind of what I stated. And, and kind of the reason I bring that up is because you end up going into this community of people in, in, in Spartan, just like a lot of different sports where everybody, everybody's got their own story, but they're all trying to accomplish a similar goal as yourself. And so everybody's trying to finish the obstacle course. Everybody's trying to do their best. Everybody's got, their own reasons for it, but we're all trying to attack the same thing. And so it's got a, that military kind of uh, aspect to it in a lot of ways. And then, yeah. and then 
and then there's kind of it's you start finding friends and you start talking to people and instead of military now you have this other uh similarity with people you have this this obstacle course racing and everybody's you know it's it's this similar thing to talk about so now there's this brother sisterhood that starts to form around obstacle course racing and and just endurance sports in general and 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 so i started building those relationships and once I started building those relationships, I, you know, and started to communicate, I, I found myself starting to communicate better. I found myself, you know, kind of coming back into the real world. And so uh, I think that's, that was really the turning point for me. Right. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating you say that because what I heard there was like, there's a loss of purpose, like something yeah. there was disconnect. It's like, even though you had that, that kind of a smoother transition because you were in a similar kind of area of life with the contracting, something was missing. And, yeah. you know, you talk with your mom and she helps you out. My dude, my family saved my ass. I'm going to go on. If they're listening, my family's <laughs> saved my ass. <laughs> um, you know, with the substance use stuff and the self-medicating, yeah, it's, yeah, it takes on a, a life of its own. And then yeah. Yeah, I used to think only weak people did that. Right. Yeah. I was like, uh, and I've been very judgmental of, of seeing other people having done that in the military. Like they stand yeah. there, what we call captain's master, non-judicial punishment. And I'm like, yep. that's so stupid to like stand there. And just and we know it's not to do it, but you do it anyway. And dude, like within a few years of making that exact judgment, I'm yep. doing the exact same. I'm just I didn't get caught is all. I ended up coming forward and saying I need help. Um, and I was still in the military. But I understand now just how much of a hold that can take over people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it got to the point for me at least where it's like, dude, I, I was hopeless, helpless, and I'm thirty years old at the time. <laughs> I'm like yeah. like a little yeah. baby to be rescued pretty much. So yeah. it's I, totally relate to that was it like yeah. that yeah i mean i it's completely like that i mean i again like going back to the days as an officer as company commander here i am passing judgment on soldiers that are you know drinking and having you know duis and and doing drugs and all those kind of things and then later on i get out and i find myself kind of in the same issue but i think the big thing for me was i i didn't want to recognize it it was kind of one of those things where i would you know drink a six-pack or whatever i was going to drink yeah. And be like, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm fine. This is just what I'm doing. And like, it's every night though. Like it's, it becomes such a habitual thing where it's like, I'm not, I'm good. I'm okay. But then you start taking a look at it and you, the doctor finally asked you that question. Well, how many drinks do you have in a week? And you're sitting there, you know, counting, you're, you're pulling socks off to count on your toes. Um, so, so I mean, definitely that the loss of purpose was definitely something that, you know, it's like what, what do I, I think the big thing is, is your service in the military is it's everybody around you and the family, community, everybody else respects that service. And you feel like you have a purpose and you're, you're with a team and you're, you're, you're going out and, you know, trying to accomplish a similar goal and, and, yeah. and, and, and those kind of different things. And then when you get out, it's all right now. You know, what, what do I mean to the world? What do I mean to my community, to society and those kind of things? And, and a lot of people struggle with that, you know, trying to find that sense of purpose, that sense of service. And, uh, and, and one of the things that I kind of preach and I got involved with an organization called the mission continues, uh, and a former Navy SEAL, Eric Greitens stood that up. And, and one of the big things that he, you know, preached was, you know, for communities and, and veterans specifically is we still need you. There's, there's still a need for your skill set. There's still a need for, for your, you as a person in your community. It's just finding that purpose and finding that, that, that calling, it, it, you know, we need to provide veterans with those opportunities and help them 
uh, find that purpose. And so that, that was definitely it. But then the thing that you mentioned the, the, that really struck a chord with me was, you know, you're saying I'm 30 years old and I'm being treated like I'm, you know, I'm going back to you know, childhood again. And yeah. I think that's very much the case. Uh, you know, I, I was 34, 35 years old, the kind of the same situation where it's like, oh, man, like, who am I? Like, you're looking yourself in the mirror, you know, with you're not a veteran, you're, you're a veteran, but you're not you're not a soldier anymore. You're not a sailor. You're, right. you, you don't have that identification anymore. And me come and I think a lot for a lot of folks that are that do serve is you're either coming out of the out of college right into the military or you're coming out of high school right into the military. So you don't have that time really in a lot of cases to develop that sense of identity before you join the service. Right. And so you join the service, you're a soldier, sailor, Marine, you know, whatever you are, and then you get out and then, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years later, and then you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs going, well, who, what do I really enjoy? Yeah. Who am I? Kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So. It's like, well, that was a question that I was going to ask you is like, were you able to, and do you even think it's possible to kind of like, I guess, take that officer uh, jacket off? Like, do you, are you, can you push away the Lieutenant Wood or Captain Wood? Sorry, I'm in the Navy. <laughs> no, yeah, you're good. You're good. You're good. Like, cause I've had a hard time with the uh, dude. I'm not, I, I was, I did a job called the title Navy SEAL. That's not who I am. Right. Yeah. It's not. And when you say looking in the mirror, I don't see all my accomplishments. I see every failure. I see every time I put a bottle to my lips or a substance in my mouth. I see the harm that I cause people. I see the people who I love that I pushed away. Like, dude, yeah. like 34 now. And I'm still like this whole, this whole, the nonprofit thing and the being of service thing. It's, it's uh, unfortunately relatively new to me in yeah. terms of really getting out of self and giving something back to other people. And it's the best thing I've ever done. I, there's nothing but connection, but, but that when we're sitting at home alone and we're not quite engaged in that, and I look and I see all of these mistakes of the past, it, it's very humiliating sometimes. And, yeah. and it's hard to get away from that for me. That's, that's just my personal thing. I was wondering if you had that similar struggle or if like, like what, what navigating that, that past into the future is kind of like for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I, it's similar, it's similar experience. I think yeah. uh, it was just one of those things where getting out and then, you know, just like you said, there was a lot of great, I, I did, I had a great military career while I was and I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I think more than anything uh, was the, the, the soldiers I got a chance to lead and they were, they were some of the most amazing people on the planet. Uh, but, but when you, when you, when you come home and you sit down on the couch and you're there alone with yourself, you're, you're questioning all the things you did wrong and all the things that, that maybe in some, t some places you were, you were kind of, uh, I don't know, like just two-faced about different things where you're passing judgment on people, but at the same time, here you are doing the same thing. And, yeah. and, and, and so it, it's, it's, it was very hard. And I think for me, fortunately, the, the, the shedding of the officer role wasn't as bad. And that, I think that for me, it was just, I just viewed myself as just somebody who was put into a position to lead people that were fully capable of doing their jobs. And I just had to provide them with the resources and, and, and the, the, the guidance to let them go out and execute. Right. I think that's, that's the biggest thing for anybody as a leader moving forward in life is just, you know, you're, you're in a position to, to, to help people 
accomplish their goals, uh, you know, that are under you or you're managing or whatever it is. Yeah. But but if just providing them with the resources and the guidance and and the ability to go out and execute the things they know how to do is is you know that's leadership in my opinion. And and I didn't view it as really I didn't really join the officer cult as much. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the opportunity to lead and the opportunity to, to kind of be out there from the front. Um, because I think that's where I excel. Um, but, but, but I think that was, I think the hardest part was coming back and trying to find, um, the right leadership for the civilian world right. versus, versus the, you know, where, what it was in the military. And you got to kind of, you kind of, kind of have to have kinder, gentler gloves on when you're out in the civilian world. And so, uh, so just finding, <laughs> finding that not, not really giving commands, but kind of having to talk through things and, and, and those kind of efforts that were going to be needed to be a, a good leader on the civilian side, is, you know, a little bit different than on the military side. I think that was the hardest thing for me when you yeah. talk about shedding the officer role. <laughs> it's so <laughs> Yeah, well, for the people listening, what what a lot of what Jason's talking about is we have a way of talking to each other in the military, right? Yeah. <laughs> like if you're if you messed up, we're like, dude, you're messed up, fix your shit. Like we don't care, what yeah. you're doing, right? Hurt feelings don't come into play where there's no emotional intelligence really needed. Um, if you want to be a good leader, I mean, you can have some of that. Like you can understand at least where people are coming from, but you don't really have to give a shit, and definitely don't have to show it. <laughs> but so. Yeah. And not that I'm leading people, you know, my current role, which I won't, I won't really talk about for conflict yeah. and all that good stuff. Uh, but you work with people that just have different mindsets, you know, showing up on time is, has a totally different meaning. Uh, yeah. How they go about problem solving, if at all, is a totally different meaning, which I, I'm with people that problem solve fantastically. But like with other people that I've seen and how that is addressed, it, it's all different. Like you have to be, uh, for at least the way I understand it, a different person altogether yeah. but some of that is, is is definitely a personal development thing for me because it takes like okay how would i want to be talked to in this situation have i ever made mistakes absolutely tons of them like i said yeah. i look in the mirror i see every single one of these mistakes and there's some humility there's some humbling that happens in that process do you find a leadership deal now in the spartan races like how does that how does the leadership aspect that seems like something you naturally uh ascribe to how does that work now yeah i think when you talk about you know, going out in, in, in that world to specifically in, in the sports side of it, it's such an individual sport um, that, that it's, it's, you know, everybody's kind of on their own, but, but I feel like with my social media presence and everything there and much like many of the other like top, you know, athlete guys and gals that are out there, I think um, you find that you're kind of almost given this responsibility to, to kind of help people, get to where you are from where you came from. And I think that for me, my story and how, you know, I came from being, you know, this, having depression, you know, being, you know, I, you know, coming from alcoholism, uh, being in that suicidal mindset at that one point. And then I gained, gosh, I was, I was nowhere near the shape I'm in now. I probably <laughs> was, you know, 50 or 60 pounds heavier yeah. and could, could, I remember the first time I got onto a treadmill here at the local gym, I could barely run a mile without dying. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and I remember doing my first Spartan race kind of was and in the story I tell in most of the podcasts was it was a Groupon deal that just happened to pop up on my screen one day <laughs> and sweet. I clicked on it and, you know, it was in Virginia. It was out there in, uh, the Western part of Virginia. Um, 
And uh, I said, you know what, let's, let's give this a shot. And so I clicked on it, bought the Groupon uh, for like an open division heat, which is just, you know, anybody and everybody who can race, just go out there and do it. Um, so you saw all kinds of different, you know, people out there doing, you know, putting their best efforts out there. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I did the, I think it was eight miles and 20 some odd obstacles. And I remember just jumping the fire at the finish line and dying. Like, just like, that was all, that was at that point, probably the hardest thing I've ever done just because of, uh, the shape I was in and everything, everything I was dealing with. But at that moment I was hooked. And so I wanted, I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And then like over time I found myself losing weight, getting in better shape. And then I started getting better and better at it. And then I found myself starting to race in the elite heats, uh, with some of the guys and gals that are, you know, professionals at this. And then, uh, over time, you know, I started having top 10 placement here and there and qualifying for world championships and in North American championships and things like that. And, um, and I think that was inspiring for a lot of people that were in the position that I, I was in three years ago. And so for me, for the leadership aspect of it, it's, it's helping people along that were in the position that I was in and understanding that there is a brighter, better day ahead of you. You just got to keep pushing forward and you just got to take the next step and, and, and don't give up on yourself and, and you'll eventually get there. I think, I think a lot of people set very large goals for themselves, like New Year's resolutions where he's like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds. And then after the first month, they've only lost a pound and they say, I give up. And so, so, you know, for, for me, it's, it's, it's small steps. You got to set those smaller, more manageable goals. And, and, you know, if it's just wake up tomorrow and try to eat better than I did today, that's a step in the right direction. And so I think, that's that's kind of where I'm at with that with that world and in, in terms of leadership and just trying to help people get, you know, get to and lead better lives. Well, I think the best leaders, in my opinion, are the ones who've actually been there. You know, when you walk the walk yeah. and you show people how to do it, that's what matters. Look, I never lost weight reading a diet book. I didn't save money reading a finances book. You know, like it, it's yeah. all about the effort and putting the effort into it. Um, you said you were hooked from the first one. Right. Yeah. Can you describe like what that hooked means? Like it was everything was one way and then it was another, another way. Like, yeah. Can you go back and describe what that felt like? Yeah, I, I think, you know, like I said, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Like it was it, everything. I remember doing the weighted bucket, which is a, the, the bucket's probably 80 pounds or so. And it's like probably like a tenth of a mile or something like that. You got to carry this thing. And I remember dropping it like it had to have been 20 times. Um, it was just, it was, you know, I was just about to give up. I remember like having that thought of, you know, I screw yeah. this. It was a Groupon deal. I quit. Like uh, a yeah. Yeah. So, so I remember finishing it like, and, and then there was other obstacles that were out there like that. Just the running alone is one obstacle. <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, it's, it, your trail running, which I wasn't, I, you know, coming from the military, you're, you're running on roads and all that time, all that. Uh, you know, stuff like that all the time. So trail running is a completely different beast. Uh, my ankles were mad at me for like a week after. Um, but, uh, but I think it was once you jump that fire and then once you kind of have the, uh, in, in the moment, you're just in pain and everything, but then you get, you have those 15 or 20 seconds or minutes or whatever it is time wise to reflect and say, man, damn, look what I just accomplished. Like, well, look what I've done. I accomplished all these different obstacles. I, you know, I got through it. I didn't quit. You know, I think I can do better. 
Like, I think I can do, and I think it's, that's, that's the piece that hooks you is the, 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 the promise of a future, you know, race that I I'm going to destroy that next race. Um, it's, it's, there's all of a sudden now you go from just having completed a race to now it's what we talked about early. It's purpose. It's my, the purpose to me working out now and getting in better shape and trying to lead a better life is this it's, it's, it's the next race and next race. And then qualifying for whatever championship you want to qualify for or breaking a personal record or breaking the, the local trails Strava, you know, uh, record kind of it's, it becomes those kind of things. And so, so, uh, I think it just gives you that sense of direction, that sense of purpose for everything that you're doing. And, uh, instead of just going to the gym and saying, well, I'm here to do curls for the girls again today. And Uh, yeah, hope, hope summertime rolls back around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, time to do another three sets of ten and call it call it a good day, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, you mentioned like the improvement, you know. It's it's like the improvement itself uh, becomes an improvement of everything around us. So you so hold on real quick. You got a 2011. You did the contracting thing. When did you do your first Spartan race? Uh, it was 2017. Okay, June, July of 2017. So it had been six years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many, uh, how many races have you done since then? Ooh, man. Uh, probably, oh man, uh, getting close to probably a hundred races total. In, yeah. in three years. <laughs> in three years. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the first two years I was addicted. Like I was racing like all the time, like every yeah. month I was doing one or two races and there's all kinds of different racing series. There's just, there's Spartan, there's bone frog, which was actually sure. set up and designed by Navy SEALs. There's, a tough mutter there's all these kind of different series that you can get yourself into and so i was doing probably two races a month three races a month at some point and then on the side of that i was doing local 5ks and everything else and so i i i, I dove in deep <laughs> clearly yeah when you said close to 100 i was like damn i think you say like yeah. maybe 10 or 15 that's that's yeah, a, no. yeah, yeah, 10 that's or 15 10 or 15 was probably in a six month time period <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy what's your so what's the hardest one you've done so far Ooh, um probably the most recent one that the the there each one are, is are difficult in their own right uh for me the mountain courses tend to be the the, sure. the brutal ones but uh this past year at uh the the spartan world championships at lake tahoe was probably the toughest one i've ever been through i think i think it was as tough because of the mental aspect of it more than just the physical. Um, it was at race start, I think it was 19 or 18 degrees at the start line. And then we had to climb 4,000, you know, 4,000 feet up the mountain. And it's the yeah. snow cap, snow cap yeah. mountain at that point. Cause it, it snowed, you know, the prior couple of days or day before. Uh, and in fact, it had delayed the race because they couldn't get emergency trucks to the top of the mountain. Uh, so we had to delay for a few hours till, you know, kind of things, you know, died off and then we were able to start the race and then Spartan in their Spartan way decided yeah. to put a, um, um, uh, a monkey ladder, uh, a rope ladder kind of thing at the top, which you start off. If you don't jump and leap and grab the rope and then climb your way up to the ladder, you're going to fall in water. And um, then on the back end of that, you're falling in water. So the water's, you know, freezing at that point. And then uh, they included a lake swim at the top too. And so at the lake swim, it looked like, uh, you know, man versus wild with Bear Grylls where everybody's stripping 
down to their underwear, dives in the lake, swims to the buoy, comes back, and then shivering out of their mind, they're trying to put their clothes back on to, you know, do, do the, the, the next eight miles of this race. Um, so, uh, so, you know, and then the obstacles were you know, obviously because it's a world championship, the obstacles are more difficult. Um, so, you know, and then at the, the mountain, they have you climb 4,000 feet up, come back down and you climb like another 3000 feet back up and you come back down and finish the race. So it was, uh, it was brutal. Um, yeah. but I, so. but I think, but I think physically, I think, I think physically everybody's kind of prepared for it at that point. I think a lot of people that, that, that dropped out of that race and that, that, uh, had a DNF, but didn't, uh, did not finish, uh, didn't finish because of the mental aspect and just how hard it was to dive in the water, like freezing cold water and yeah, do cool. some of those obstacles and stuff. So I think that was, that was the big thing. I think that's why it's been the hardest race to date for me. And you had a, you had a team of people doing this, right? No, no. The, so that Spartan world oh, championship okay. is just, you're, you're doing it on your own. Uh, wow. so yeah. So, okay. <laughs> so you're, you're in, there's no, uh, and, and you've got guys and gals out there that, you know, and you know, you try to pass them a little bit of a, a word of encouragement as you pass them by like, Hey, you're looking good kind of thing. <laughs> But yeah. uh, but yeah. everybody's dying in their own right, and so it's just you know you're you're just trying to finish it. So so it's, it was at a certain point it became less about um, less about you know my finishing time and my placement, and more about just survive and finish. Yeah, for sure. How did you qual? You have to qualify for that to get to the yeah. World yeah. Yes. Okay. So so uh, to qualify, you know, for some of the and they change it every year. So this year is a little bit different. But that this past year to qualify, you had to finish. I think in the top. 50 or so of the the u.s national series which is a five five races in five different locations in the country last year it was like seattle jacksonville utah alabama and i can't remember the other one but uh you've raced in all five you get points and everybody gets stacked ranked based on their how they finish in each one of those races yeah. and then if you finish in the top 50 of that then you qualify to go on to the world championships and so the, this year is going to have a, probably another little bit of a different wrinkle in it. I can't remember what they're doing for this year because we haven't raced yet. Yeah. Uh, we, so really, we haven't raced a lot. Yeah, I should say. Of but, uh, but, uh, but this year is a little bit different. But I have already qualified for the Spartan North American Championships, uh, which will be at Lake Tahoe this year in, yeah. I think, September time frame um, or, or maybe October. But uh, the World Championships this year for Spartan are going to be in Abu Dhabi. So uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I decided I decided to skip out on that this year, and I, the the Kilimanjaro thing has really been my focus this year. I think that's been my, you know, alpha goal going yeah. into this whole thing. Yeah, that plus surviving the coronavirus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, talk to me real quick about not even real quick. I don't know why I said that. Um, so about how do you why the Kilimanjaro one? I mean, it's the is because of the Guinness World Record deal or what? Um, well, actually Kilimanjaro was kind of always has been on my bucket list. And, yeah. uh, just these past couple of years, um, I started getting into, involved with an organization, a nonprofit called wine to water. And, um, it's an organization that, you know, goes to these remote places on, you know, on the earth and, and tries to provide clean potable water for, you know, for, uh, people that lack it. And so there's a lot of disease and, and, and children dying of dysentery right. and things like that all over the world. And, so, um, so I got it linked up with them and I went on my first trip a couple, like two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago, I went on a trip with them to the Amazon. I got a chance to go down to Colombia and Peru and Brazil and mainly Colombia, but provide 
uh, filtration systems to a couple of villages. And then we went around and fixed existing watering wells uh, so that, you know, we could provide tr- clean water for these villages that were off the Amazon River. What, and, what, was, uh, the what was the name of the wa- organization? Wa- wine to Water. Wine to Water? Yep. Okay. Yep. So uh, it's uh, the organization is based out of Boone, North Carolina. It's, you know, it's uh, the guy, the guy, Doc Henley, who started it was a 2009 CNN hero. Great organization. Nice. Um, I, I knew of them early on, but I didn't really I gave money and things like that. But I didn't really get involved till about two years ago when I went on my first trip to the Amazon. And then last year, the same group that went with to the Amazon, we decided to do another trip. So last year we went to uh, um, Nepal and we went, uh, you know, down in the southern part of Nepal. But while we were there, before we left, we got a chance to go see, uh, you know, do a flyby of, of Mount Everest. And, um, I, that just gave me the itch, man. Like I, it was, it was, it was one of those things where you just see something like that finally live and in person and the magnitude of it. And you're just like, man, I want to, I, 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 there's something in me that was like, I, you got to do something similar to that. And so I started doing some research and, you know, Kilimanjaro seemed to be one of those things where it was, you know, for most people it was manageable and it wasn't too death defined and, uh, there was a, there was a decent, uh, success rate and things like that. And then, so I, you know, I started looking at that as being my kind of trip to, for 2020. And then again, like the Groupon deal, I don't know if it's fate or what, but yeah. just on my, I'm scrolling through Instagram and then there's this world's highest OCR. Yeah. And I said, what, you know, clicked on it and said, what, what the hell is this? And sure yeah. enough, it's Mount Kilimanjaro. And then coming along with that is a, is a world record. And so I think for me, it's, uh, it became, you know, not only do I get to kick one of these things off my bucket list and climb one of the highest places in the world, yeah. uh, but, I, but I get a chance to, to, to make a world record attempt while I'm at it. And, and it's, you know, for me, it's, it's become, it, there's some selfish purposes to it. There, there, and I think it's, I think every, anybody who's anybody's going to admit that it's, yeah, it's about it. you know, so- I'm going to, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, at some point, you know, you have to do things for yourself and you have to be able to, you know, there's things that you want to accomplish that, 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 you know, whether it's a world record or winning a championship or, or, you know, whatever it is in life that you want to accomplish there, you know, it's, 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 it's your goal. It's your accomplishment. And, 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 and you want to, you know, set your mark and you want to have, everybody wants to put their place, their mark on this world in some way, shape, form or fashion. And so for me, it's, it just became that it became, um, it became a, how do I not only make my mark on the world and, and impact, um, impact others, but how, how do I make a statement, um, you know, to my daughter for, for the most part is, is, Hey, look, you know, you can accomplish, there's an, there, if, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything you want to in life. And I know, you know, being a woman for, for my daughter, there'll be, you know, things that will be in her way and everything. But, but I, I don't want to set those limitations for her. I want, I want her growing up now and, and me setting the example that anything you set your mind to, you can accomplish. And, um, and I think this world record is probably more for her than me. And, and a lot of those, in a lot of, a lot of cases, when you talk about things like that is just, yeah. you know, my, the, the, the legacy I want to leave to her and the message I want to send to her um, is that you can do anything you set your mind to and, 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 and you can set world records. You don't have to come from money. You don't have to, 
you have a certain background or anything like that, you can be little regular old Jason Wood and go out and set a world record. And, um, and I think that's just where I'm at. <laughs> I like how your selfish notions were to set an example for your daughter. <laughs> like, dude, come on. That's not simple. But that sounds like you, though, based off what I've, I've heard you say the entire time is like, you have a different version and definition of selfish than most actually selfish people. Dude, I'm selfish. I do things for me. <laughs> You think to like give back and set examples. I mean, I'm trying to change that, right? But it's amazing what you said because you're also going to raise the bar for what she expects out of other men. Like, let's yeah. be honest, right? Because women end up marrying to some extent their da- their dads, right? I'm not trying to be Freudian psychoanalysis. I am a psych major, full disclosure. Um, <clears throat> but you're also setting just a lot of good examples for it. Like, don't yeah. let these obstacles get in the way. We we started with obstacles: PTSD, depression, substance use disorders. Like these, some of these are insurmountable, hence the veteran suicide rate, which outsets the, the non-veteran suicide rate by a substantial amount. So that's what I love about these stories is it's really about, you know, we don't get to tell the stories of the people that died. We can tell the people that we can tell what they maybe they did and they served in this unit and they did this thing. But we don't get to tell the story that happens afterwards. We don't get to talk about the conflicts. We don't get to talk about well, who these people become. You mentioned Mount St. Helens. and I pulled up a quick Sir Edmund Hillary quote, Sir Edmund Hillary was the guy that first summited Mount St. Helens. And he said, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. Yeah. By far and large, uh, the most important aspect of just continuing to move forward. And I think you said it perfectly earlier. It's like, start with the small goal. Don't start with the, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds in 2020 and then put it off till 2030 and it never happens. Right? Yeah. Just change one thing at a time. Um, yeah. Or for you, just look up a Groupon coupon yeah. pop and say, that seems kind of cool. You're like, yeah, Mount St. Helens. I think I might want to climb that. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it's just insane. Yeah. So this yeah. deal is 12 days, right? Is that yeah. the way I – okay. Yeah. And you, but this one you have a team for, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, I think – I don't know if we filled up all the, ga- all the, the uh, places or not, but there was going to be up to 60 people that were going to do it. And they, uh, they come from all different backgrounds, all different you know, countries everywhere. We're all over the world. Um, we're all going to come together and try to accomplish this thing all, you know, all at once. So it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, it, it's, there's some individual aspects to it. Cause you're going to, you're going to walk off with the individual world record, but it, it's going to be accomplished as a team. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be us. We're kind of rooting each other on and making it possible. So that'll be an interesting aspect of it is just, cause you're going to have, you're going to have, and the guys who've set this thing up have talked about it. You're going to have that dynamic of, you know, you have some folks that are really alphas that are going to be hard charging and want to get up the mountain fastest and those kind of things. And then you're going to have people that are going to, you know, want to make sure that the kind of military mindset leave nobody behind. Um, so it, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. And, you know, I, we'll see how that works out. But yes, I think it's up to 60. I don't know if we're going to have that many. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'd like to wrap up with, um, like what, what would you say? So we've obviously got, you know, veterans that are out or people that are about to be out and hopefully some of them end up listening to either, if not to this podcast, to, to some other podcast, anything that has anything to do with the people that have been there and they're walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Yeah. What message would you have for them? I think for me, from my perspective is don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to communicate about the experiences you've had. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. I think a lot of it, there's a stigma around 
when you when you're in the military, I feel like when I was in the military, at least uh, it, it was it was, um, you know, everybody wants to be the alpha. Everybody kind of wants to be the hard charger. Everybody wants to be the the symbol of strength and 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 being able to admit anything otherwise would be kind of viewed as a weakness. And then all of a sudden you become the the shitty soldier or the shitty Marine or something like that. Um, I think the big thing for me is, is get it, let it out, talk about it, reach out to people, um, find groups of people that have, you know, similar backgrounds, find yourself in organizations and nonprofits, um, that are in your community, even, uh, community organizations, you know, veteran, there's, there's plenty of veteran organizations. And I think most of the communities that we all serve in, uh, find yourself there, you know, help, you're you're you still have purpose in 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 life once you get out and and it's just finding what you know really um you know sings to your soul i guess and what what you really want to want to do and i think being able to talk about those experiences and and really um put yourself out there in a lot of ways would be is viewed more as a strength now more than ever. Um, and, and, and it helps eventually lead you in the right direction. I mean, if I didn't start talking about some of the things that I've been through and some of the things that situations I've been in and kind of what, what I've experienced in life, I, I would not be here right now. I wouldn't be, you know, have, talking to you on this podcast. I, I think by putting it out there, it, you start connecting with the right people, you start connecting with the right organizations you start finding yourself in the right situations. Um, and, and the next next thing you know, you're kind of on the right path. And, and, and then your military career uh, kind of becomes um, kind of uh, the backbone of, of how you lead the rest of your life. But it doesn't have to be how it defines you for the rest of your life. Um, and it's particularly the mistakes you've made or, or the ideologies you've had or, or, or you know, the the past transgressions you've had uh those don't define you um what's going to define you is how you approach the next day and the next day after that uh are you going to get up and and get yourself up off the mat kind of you know per se and and keep driving forward or or are you going to just let you know how the world kind of defines you as a failure be how you live the rest of your life um I think that's a, that's a choice we all have to make. It's a tough choice, but, but I, you know, I definitely call on you to, 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 to make that next step. There's brighter days ahead. And, and, uh, and if you just set those goals and and keep moving forward, you're going to get there. Awesome, man. Dude, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the same, you know, no problem. First podcast ever. You crushed it. Um, I feel sorry for whoever comes next. (laughs) They got some, uh, some, some big shoes to fill, man. But seriously, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. And again, before we get off, I do want to say like the, so for climb four and everything you guys are doing and, and the goals and everything you guys have set up um, and what you're providing for veterans is, is great. I I'm, I'm that, that's really the reason I'm, I'm doing this on behalf of the, the organization. Uh, I feel like not only are the people that are, are surrounding the organization, leading the organization in the right direction, uh, are great people and, 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 and trustworthy people and, and the type of people I want to surround myself with, but the, 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 just getting veterans out into the outdoors and, 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 and getting them moving and, 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 uh, you know, just really in nature 
yeah, that's something that's really resounded with me. And so I, I hope I can do my part in helping the organization grow and, and, and keep doing what you guys are doing. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Hey, no problem, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please read the show notes for any links or other amplifying information mentioned or used in the production of today's show. Climb 4 is a registered 501c3. To purchase merchandise, contribute donations, or to apply for hiking camping equipment, or to send us a message, please visit Climb 4 at www.climb-4.org. That's www.climb-4.org. And if you're a veteran and wish to be on the podcast, please send an email to info at climb-4.org. Once again, that's info at climb-4.org. See you next time.